All right, this past week, I received an anonymous note in the mail by an individual who, realizing that I've been out of town for a few weeks, I think is expressing some type of concern in a rather creative way. Inside the envelope was nothing but the following story. A new preacher came to deliver his first sermon in a prairie parish, but no one showed up except one cowhand. The preacher wondered aloud whether to proceed with the services. So he asked the man if he should proceed, and the man said, I don't know much about preaching, I'm just a cowhand. But if I went out to feed my cows and only one showed up, I'd be darned if I wouldn't feed her. So he was encouraged by that, and he started to preach. 20 minutes into it, he was preaching. 30 minutes went by. 40 minutes went by, 60 minutes went by. An hour and a half later, he said, Amen. And he had worked up a sweat, and he went down to the cow hand, and he said, So what did you think? He said, Well, I don't know much about sermons. I don't know much about preaching. But I know this. If I went out to feed my cows, and only one showed up, I'd be darned if I'd feed her the whole wagon full of hay. See, now, I don't get it. And I don't understand what that has to do with me. Although there'll be some guys at Baseball Chapel later this morning who'll be grateful that I got that in the mail this week. I guess, I guess the, the point is that it's really easy to become blind to our own faults, to not see, not see things very clearly, not see things as other people see them. And I'll come back to that in a second. But the Sunday school teacher asked her young class the following question said, how many of you would like to go to heaven? And immediately, every hand in the room went up. But she noticed in the back of the room, there was one little boy who didn't raise his hand. Now, she didn't want to embarrass him in front of everybody at that moment in time, but it concerned her that he wouldn't raise his hand. So at lunchtime, at recess, she went up to him and said, you know, Timmy, I noticed that when I asked if, you know, who would want to go to heaven, raise your hand, you didn't raise your hand. And he was kind of looking sheepishly at the ground, and she said, well, don't you want to go to heaven one day? And he went, kind of shrugging his shoulders, and he said, well, I mean, are, are you sure you don't want to go to heaven someday? And he went, oh, well, sure I do. And she said, then why didn't you raise your hand? And he looked at her and said, because I thought you were trying to get a group together to go today. <laughs> you know, what's that hiss? I haven't seen you for a few weeks. Be easy on me now. But you know, I was thinking about that. You know, we, we live in a culture that um, there are similar, there's similar confusion as to how to get to heaven. You know, if you stop and think about it, you know, what must one do or what must one believe in order to get to heaven at the end of our life here on earth? And you know, in our ongoing study of Paul's letter to the Romans, we come to a passage that is clear and concise as to the directions that God gives on how to get to heaven. You know, I was thinking about directions and things like that when I was out for a run the other day, and there's probably nothing worse. How many of you run? Anybody run? A little bit? Okay. Well, there's nothing worse than being out on a run, and some of you can relate to this. And, and as you're running, you sense a car pulling up next to you. 
and, and inevitably, the reason they're slowing down to follow you is not to get your autograph in my case, um, but usually to ask directions. And there is nothing worse than when you're running to have to stop and give someone directions. That's like the worst, no, there's one worse thing than that. And, and that is that when you're running, having to use a construction site porta potty. That, 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 that's worse. But, um, oh no, actually, there's even one more thing I just thought that's worse than that. And, and that's having to use one and not be able to find one. Okay. Uh, now, now, going back to the direction thing, you know, uh, so it's not, there are things worse than being asked directions, but you get the point. But as, as someone stops and asks you directions, there's nothing more embarrassing than not being able to help them. Considering the fact that I've been running the same route pretty much for the last 12 years, there's just one thing I've never really took into consideration, and that's street names. You know what I mean? It's like, uh... Are you, you know, it's like, wow, are you new around here? No, I've been running these streets for 12 years. Well, then why can't you help me? Because I just haven't paid attention. I mean, I haven't thought about it, you know, but, I, you know, now I'm starting to think about, you know, I should at least know some of the major streets so I can help people to stop and ask directions. But as I was thinking about this whole thing about how to get to heaven, I thought, wow, you know what, what if someone came up to me or to you and asked you, hey, do you, excuse me, wind the window down. Can you tell me how to get to heaven? Now, I realize not many people come up to us in our life and say, can you tell me how to get to heaven? But I also realize that it is our responsibility, those of us who know how to get to heaven, to share with those who are lost and sometimes not even aware that they're lost and not know that they're lost and don't know how to get to heaven, that we need to be proactive and share with people, hey, you need to know something that obviously you don't know. And that is how to get to heaven. Now listen, you're back for the first time in a month. You can't say anything. You are not entitled to say anything. You've lost all privileges and rights. There are people here 15, 16 years. They don't say anything. And don't you start either. All right. You ever see those self-help books? The man needs one of those self-help uh, self tapes. In our, in our trade, we call it duct tape. Okay, now where was I? Ah, now you want to know what I was going to do with the extra time. Boy, you know what? We'll come back to this in a little bit. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, where we're going to find some help. Romans chapter 3. In this passage, starting with verse 9, we're going to find clear directions from God through the Apostle Paul as to how to get into heaven. And who better to turn and ask directions and trust for such directions than God himself? Think about it. God is the creator of the universe. God is the creator of heaven. God dwells in heaven. The Bible tells us that Jesus came from heaven to the earth, that at the end of his time here on earth and after his death and resurrection, that he ascended back into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, indicated that his work here on earth is finished. The act of sitting down is an act of rest or completion. 
Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Everything that he came to do, God's plan to rescue and save man was complete in what Jesus did on the cross. The Bible says that after his resurrection, 40 days later, he ascended back into heaven. And he said this, that there's no way to get there but through me. I am the way to heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Who better to turn to and ask for directions to heaven than God himself who resides there and has created it for his abode and also for us as we will see here shortly. So we're going to take a look at three steps. According to this passage and many others, three steps that will lead to heaven. Three steps that if we acknowledge these three as the route in which to take. You know, I look at the Bible kind of as if, if you have a job where you've got to travel much and you've ever had to turn to a Thomas Brothers map book. In a construction business that we're in, we're always looking up, you know, coordinates on the map. Where's this job site? Where's this particular location? Where's this city? You know, where's the coordinates? And we're always turning to a Thomas Brothers map book because it can give us that information. See, the Bible is God's version of a Thomas Brothers map book. See, the Bible is God's directions in written form as to how to get into heaven, how to be right before God, how to be justified before God, and as we'll see, that's a very important thing that every one of us understand. And so as we look at this, we're going to look at three steps that lead to heaven, as found in Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 9, we read these words. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In this particular passage, the first step that we are shown clearly, and the only way that any of us will ever get into heaven, that any of us will be justified before God, is by recognizing that we are all guilty before him. The first step in our travel towards heaven as a destination is a step that we take by recognizing that all of us are guilty before God. If you've been with us throughout this series, you realize the context of Romans 1, starting with verse 18 through Romans 3, verse 20, where we just left off today, the context speaks of condemnation. Why all of mankind, whether Jew or Greek, whether religious people or non-religious, whether those with a Bible or without a Bible, are without excuse before God. And God has gone to great lengths to help you and me to recognize our true condition before him. You know, and as I read through this, I go, why, God, why do you continue to try to make this point as clear as you are? Why does it seem to be, in some cases, so redundant? Because many of us by now are thinking, wow, this is like the third or fourth or fifth time that we have clearly seen or been told that all of us are guilty before God. Why is that? 
I'll tell you why I believe it is. Because it's very easy for us to become blind to our own faults. If you've ever had someone in your family or in your life who is having a difficult area in one area or another, and they seem to be oblivious to what is obvious to everybody around them, you recognize how difficult it is at times to reach a person who is set in their ways, who are stubborn in maybe the things that they are doing, or even worse yet, those who have become dependent on drugs or alcohol or whatever, and they are blind to the obvious. And so I think what God's trying to do here is help you and I understand that, guess what, Chuck, I, I need you to understand that you are guilty before me. See, because before I will cry out for help, I need to know I need help. Before I'll ever go to a doctor, I'll tell you what, I need to know that I'm really sick. It's a guy thing. You know what I mean? But I'm not going to see a doctor unless I realize there is nowhere else to turn, but I think it's time to go in. See, God has in many ways throughout our study of Romans clearly painted a picture of mankind that helps you and me to come to an individual recognition that I am guilty before God. And notice the principle of condemnation that's stated in verse 9. See, Paul says, what then? The question is, okay, well, you know, what then? Are we, he identifies himself with his readers, who at this point he was talking to those who are Jewish, and saying to them, are we better than they? What he was saying was, are the Jews better than the Greeks? Are the Jews better than the Gentiles? Are the religious people of the world better than the non-religious people of the world? Are the people who read their Bibles better than those who don't read their Bibles? Sin, are we better than they? And notice what he says, not at all. It says, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. We've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. That every one of us are guilty. It's easy sometimes to see the guilt in the life of another person. But what God wants me to know is, Chuck, you are guilty. I need to come and you need to come to the conclusion that what God is saying is true and come to the conclusion that I am guilty. Not the person sitting next to you, not the person sitting behind you, not the person who invited you, not the person who hands you a tape. It's you and me as individuals are guilty before God. The advantage he was saying is, are we better than they are? What advantage do we have? And the answer was very simple, and that's this. Yeah, the Jews had an advantage over the Greeks. Their advantage was that God had given him his word in written form. They were the possessors and the keepers of the laws of God. The advantage that they had is that they should have been reading it and come to that conclusion sooner than anybody else. That was their advantage, but that was the only advantage. The advantage they had was the word of God, the laws of God, condemned them, and if they would have been paying attention to what God was saying, they would have came to the conclusion long before anybody else that they were guilty. That was their advantage. That is our advantage who have possession of the Bible in our hands, that we can read it. Our advantage is that we know something that the world around us doesn't know because they haven't turned to the Thomas Brother math book for directions, but God's word we have, and we have an advantage. And the advantage is that we should know what God is saying. We are without excuse. So now, there will always be those who are offended and become indignant uh, when told that they're guilty before God. Just as the Jews became quite offended when Paul would identify himself as a Jew and then say, but it doesn't matter because we have no special privilege before God. We're just as guilty as the Gentiles. Now, you've got to understand what was being said there. 
the Jews thought the Gentiles absolutely worthless. In fact, they often called them Gentile dogs. That was their definition or description of them. And a dog wasn't a real pleasant thing in that culture. Dogs were undomesticated. They were wild animals. They were scavengers. They were beasts. And so the Jews, who thought themselves highly, thought of themselves highly and thought they had a better relationship with God, looked at people around them and said, they're nothing but a bunch of dogs. Now here's Paul saying, hey, you know what? You are no better than them. I am no better than them. And all of a sudden, it's like going to church people and saying to church people, guess what? You are no better than the person at your office or the person that you go to school with or the person that you play ball with. You're no better than them if all you've got in your relationship with God is that you go to church and they don't. You're just as guilty as them. Now the world becomes indignant. It says, no way, no, no, no way. I'm better than them. No, you're not. Wow, see, we don't like to hear stuff like that because we like to think that we're okay. But the proof is laid out in verses 10 through 18, and it's the proof of Scripture, and God lays out his case. I want you to picture in your mind the, the, uh, the scene of a prosecutor in a courtroom. And God is the judge, and there is no jury. God as judge and prosecutor begins to make charges and accusations against every one of us, you and me included. And he's going to go down through this list and begin to charge us individual charges that will help us to see what God is trying to say. And the first thing he says is this. Notice this. He says there's none righteous, not even one. I want you to look at this. In fact, if you've got your Bible, you might want to circle this. But if you look and see, he's asked the question, there's four times he'll answer this, how many righteous are out there? And he answers it four times with the word none. And two times he says, no, not even one. There are none righteous, none, 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 none. And two times he says, not even one, not even one. How many sinners are there? Look at verse 9. All have sinned. We're going to see that in verse 19. The whole world is guilty before God. We see it in verse 12. All have turned. What I did when I was going through and studying this, I just started circling the words none. None, not even one. None, none. All, none, not even one. And the reason that I did it is because it helps me to understand this. If all are guilty and none are righteous, no, not even one, ask yourself a question. Where do you fall in? Let me repeat it. All are guilty, none are righteous, no, not even one, meaning no exceptions. You're not an exception, I'm not an exception. All of us are guilty. So now what he does is, he helps us to understand that. Look at the first thing. It says in verse 10 through 12, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God, and all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. The first thing he points out is this. Our capacity for good in God's eyes, is non-existent. How many times have you heard a person say, but I'm a good person? How many times have you heard someone speaking of another person say, he was or she was a good person? God wants us to understand something. There is no truth whatsoever to that statement concerning me or concerning you. 
There is no such thing as a good person. We see things from our own vantage point. We see things from a human perspective, kind of a horizontal plane. We look at people and say, you know what, compared to other people I know, he's a pretty good person. Compared to other people I know, she's a pretty good person. Compared to other people I know, I'm a great person. Just depends on who you're hanging out with. So, you know, we look at that and we begin to compare ourselves with one another. But the problem is this. We must see ourselves as God sees ourselves. And God being holy and perfect and sinless, he looks at all of us, you and me included, and he says, Chuck, you need to see you from my vantage point of perfection. There are none of you who are perfect. Now, there isn't anybody that you would talk to who would disagree with that. We know that, right? I've never met anybody perfect. But on a horizontal human perspective, I know people that are better than other people, at least in my own eyes and in my vantage point and by my definition. You know, take it from an athletic plane. You can know people that are good athletes, great athletes, compared to other athletes, and that's a perspective. Now, if you would consider that person's ability based on perf perfection, you would say, well, there's no one I've ever seen that's perfect. There's some who are better than others. There's some who are a lot better than others. You know, when I go and I, and I visit a professional locker room and I look at professional athletes, those guys are a lot better than guys that I would visit with that are on the college level or in high school level or in any other level. They're, they're the best at what they do. But none of them are perfect. See, from God's perspective, he's saying, Chuck, you got to understand, I am perfect. I am holy. I am sinless. And when I look at humanity, I can say this with full confidence. None of you have the capacity for anything that's good. Because God defines goodness. God is good. God is great. Let us thank him for our food. Amen? Amen. All right. So the point is, is that he says that, you know what? Hey, there's no way. As we look at ourselves and we see ourselves from God's perspective, which we're reading about right now, he says this. There is none righteous, not even one. What does it mean to be righteous? It means to be right with God. It needs to be right with God. And the only way we can be right with God is to do things God's way. We can have disagreements with one another and we can debate on who's at fault and we can compromise as to how to get along with each other. But you've got to understand something about God. He sets a standard and he says, this is what you need to do to be right with me. And we're going to talk more about that in detail. And it's a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. You've got the freedom to choose, but this is my plan and this is the only way you're going to get into heaven. Take it or leave it. See, God doesn't have to negotiate or compromise with any one of us. He has come to offer us his plan his route to heaven, his route to forgiveness, his route to justification or being declared innocent by him instead of being condemned, he's saying, Chuck, this is the plan. Take it or leave it. But I'm not negotiating with you. He says there are none who are righteous, not even one. Psalm 14 tells us that the Lord looks down from heaven and sees us and evaluates us from God's vantage point. I want you just to stop and think about that from a very simple perspective. God is in heaven, and he looks down upon the earth, and he sees every one of us as individuals. And guess what he sees? 
He sees the stuff that the person that calls us good doesn't see. Oops. He judges the secrets of men, we're told. See, there's nothing hidden from his sight. Now ask yourself this question. For those who think you're good enough, based on your own merits, to get into heaven, God says, you know what? Are you perfect? In fact, let me remind you of something that I saw you do that no one to this day on earth even knows about, but I do. Mm. There's none righteous, not even one. Second charge, there is none who understands. In other words, there's not one of us who acts upon the knowledge that we have received. We already saw when we were reading chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, how men suppress the truth. That even as we come to know the truth, we don't always act upon it the way that we know we should. The question that you have to ask, and I ask myself, is this. When I know the truth, have I always done the right thing? And I'll be honest with you. I've known things in my life that I shouldn't have done that were wrong, and I chose to do them anyway. Why? Because there's nothing good in me. Because I don't have the capacity to do the right thing. Even when I know the right thing to do, oftentimes I don't even choose to do the right thing. Even I know the, you know the right way to go, I go the other way. Why is that? Because the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's something within the nature of man called sin that has us rebelling against God. See, the first charge is none righteous. The second charge is there's none that understand, that we don't live up to what we understand. The third charge is, in verse 11, there is none that seeks after God. Notice that. There is none who seeks after God. Isn't that interesting? God is not hidden today. He's not playing hide-and-seek with man. He's not playing peekaboo. Try to find me. He's not. God has revealed himself. The Bible says in Acts 17, where before God had, was hidden, he has now been revealed. He had become manifest in the person of Jesus Christ, a big word that just means that we're, by his appearance, we see him for who he really is. As we look at the life of Jesus, the character of Jesus, the actions of Jesus, the words of Jesus, we see clearly God revealed in human flesh. God is not hiding from mankind. He has come to seek and to save that which was lost, is the words out of Jesus' own mouth. He has come to reveal himself to us. God is not hiding from man. And yet, you know what the Bible says? There are none who seek him. How does he know that? Because if we were seeking him, we will find him. Think about it, just from a practical application. If God is chasing and pursuing you, and me, and I can't find him, it's only because what? I got my back turned to, uh, from him, and I'm running away from him. Because he's following me. Now, in order for me to seek him and to find him, I've got to stop running from him, which the Bible says acknowledge the fact that you're guilty, then I stop and I turn, which the Bible calls repentance. I turn from rebelling against God, and I turn toward God. And guess what? When I turn, what do you think I'm going to see? I'm going to see the face of Jesus. And I'm going to come to know him personally. Because I'm no longer running from him. The Bible says that he who seeks him will not be disappointed. He who searches for him will surely find him. 
Man does not find God because man is running from God and coming up with our own set of belief systems so we don't have to be accountable to God's plan and to God's program. That, my friends, is called religion. Let me tell you something about religion. Religion is not seeking after God. The religions of the world are doing anything but that according to the word of God. The religions of the world are seeking a way to justify man's rebellion against God and have turned from him and are running from him. And we justify it with all kind of names of belief systems, but the bottom line is this. We're not searching for God because if we were looking for him, we would find him because he's seeking us. There are none who are righteous. There are none that understand. There are none that seeks after God. And he says that all of us have, have turned aside, just turned and gone astray. You know, the history of man is this, that man knew God, that man walked in fellowship with God, that Adam and Eve walked in the garden created by God for their enjoyment and knew God. The history of the world is that man has always known the truth about God, but man has turned aside and to walk from that. Man has become lost in the path that we're pursuing because we have misplaced the directions that God had clearly given us. You think about that. You don't think that's true? Let me tell you something about what's going on in our own nation. I read this the other day, and it was the first thing that I thought about. Man has known the truth, but man has rejected God's truth and substituted for a lie and come up with our own program. And if you don't think that's true, I want you to read, if you can find a copy of this, but I read this past week that the Ohio state motto, the state of Ohio, the state motto was, with God all things are possible. The state Supreme Court has caused that motto to become invalid because it says that it violates the separation of church and state. Because in context, and what they're saying is true, in context, it was, if you recall the context from a scriptural standpoint, the disciples said to Jesus, then how can anyone get into heaven? Because Jesus said it's, 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 it's easier for a camel to, to climb through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. That's the context. And the disciples said, then how can anybody get into heaven? And Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. In context, referring to Jesus Christ, the state of Ohio Supreme Court says that is Christianity being promoted by the state of Ohio, therefore it's a violation of separation of church and state. That's been happening in our country for the last 20 years all over the place. Started when school prayer was thrown out, it's continued with nativity scenes being thrown out, it's continuing with holidays no longer being Easter, now there's spring break, and it continues. And what God is saying to all of us is, we are living in, and we are in an era that is a perfect example of validating God's truth when God says, you have all known the truth, but you've turned from it. And you're guilty. The history of the world is the world known God, and the world knew God's truth. And the world said, we don't want anything to do with you. We'll come up with our own gods. That way we can do what we want to do when we want to do it. And God says, all have turned aside from the truth. And how any of us can sit here and say that that's not true. We're blind to the obvious. We're oblivious to the obvious. We need to recognize that God's word is truth. 
And God wants us to see ourselves as he sees us because we're guilty. And if that's not enough, it continues on. He says, uh, he goes on and says, all have turned aside in verse 12. Together they become useless. You know what the word is? Rotten. We become rotten before God. That's a word that's used of fruit that has gotten rotten. At one time, it was, it was uh, productive. At one time, it was beautiful. At one time, it, it had a sweet taste to it. And now it has become rotten. I can't help but think it. At one time, this nation was a, had a sweet taste to it. At one time, this nation was a sweet aroma to the very nostrils of God when we put him first and we honored him as God and we pursued his truth and we lived it out in our culture. At one time, we were sweet to God. But he's saying, now you've become rotten. You stink. You're an abomination to me. You get me sick. And we're all guilty. No one likes to hear that kind of stuff. We all want to hear that just we're just so sweet and nice. But we need to see us for who we really are. He goes on and says, There's none that doeth good, not even one. None. We're blind to our own faults. Now, if you're standing in that courtroom before that judge, who he lays out all those charges... The question for you is this. How do you plead? As an individual, how would you plead before that judge? I don't know about you, but he didn't have to go too far. I think charge number one was pretty convincing to me. I didn't need to even hear the rest of them. So by the end of all of it, I'm just standing there going, you know what, even with my head down, because I couldn't even look at the judge. I'm guilty. I'm guilty as charged. And you know what's the wonderful thing about that? God says a broken and contrite heart, God will never despise. The person who recognizes that they're guilty before God has hope. And we're going to look at that a little bit more. But for those who are still sitting here a little bit stubborn, he takes us out of a courtroom and he takes us over to the medical clinic and he turns us over to the great physician who's going to do a spiritual examination. Now notice what he says as we pick it up in verse 13. You go into the doctor's office, the office of the great physician, and you're standing before him, and he says, okay, open up wide. And you open up wide, and you stick out your tongue, and the first thing the doctor says is this. Your throat is an open grave. Your throat is an open grave. What's he talking about? He's talking about our our capacity to do good is non-existent, our conversation before God is polluted. He says, your throat is an open grave. Let's just consider for a moment the stuff that comes out of your mouth. See, the things that we say are a reflection of who we really are. Isn't that true? The words that we use are a reflection of who we really are. The words that we use reflect what we're thinking. The words that we use are a reflection of what's in our heart. Jesus warned that out of the mouth is what comes, you know, all those things that are really a reflection of our heart and ultimately then become our actions. But he's saying that your throat is an open grave. The things that come out of our mouth indicate what? A grave is, is symbolic of death. God says that man has sinned and sin brought forth death. Sin is spiritual death. Death, physical death, is separation from the body, from the spirit. Spiritual death is just a separation of your soul from God. He's saying that, you know what, Chuck, out of your mouth, I mean, the things that come out of your mouth indicate that you're dead spiritually. 
And notice some of the things that he says. He says, and your tongue, they keep deceiving. So here's your throat. It's spiritually dead. It's a grave. And the stuff that we say, what, is deceiving. He's saying the fact that we lie is an indication that we're guilty before God. Thou shalt not lie. If you lie, you violate the law, right? And if you violate the law, you're guilty of, of, of disobeying the law. If you're guilty of one aspect of it, you're guilty of all of it. So he's saying, Chuck, if you've ever lied, that's just an indicator that you are guilty before me. He says that out of your mouth come lies. Think about that. The poison of, and he goes on, he says, and the poison of asps or snakes is under your lips. You know, a snake bite can kill you physically, but there are things that human beings do to one another that are worse than snake bites. We can destroy each other with our mouth. We can destroy a person's reputation. We can, we can slander somebody. We can gossip about somebody. We can say mean and destructive things to somebody that will destroy them. Getting bit by a snake sometimes would be easier than the things that come out of our mouths in regards to one another. I was in an office the other day and a guy was, was troubled by the fact that there was somebody in his own company who was slandering his reputation, trying to destroy him with words, accusing him of things that he had never done, and then wondering, how do you answer that? What do you do about that? What do you say about that? How do you answer such charges? Because the more you run around trying to tell people you're innocent, the more they think you're guilty. All because somebody had the poison of a snake let loose from their mouth. You know, we can drive people crazy. We can, we can be critical and, and bitter and condemning of one another. I like the story that I heard of a man who goes to his rabbi. He says, Rabbi, something is happening and I have to talk to you about it. The rabbi said, well, what's wrong? He says, my wife, I believe she's poisoning me. And the rabbi was surprised and he asked, how can that be? And he said, you know what, I'm telling you, I'm certain she's poisoning me slowly. What should I do? And the rabbi said, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to talk to her and I'll see what I can find out and I'll let you know. A week later, the rabbi calls the man and says, well, I spoke to your wife. I spoke to her on the phone for three hours. You want my advice? The man said, yeah, what is it? He said, take the poison. You know what I mean? You know, the Bible says, hey, oh, there's a hiss. There's a snake let loose. The poison of asps is under your, under your tongue. You know, you stop and think about that, though. There are people in our life where, you know what, we just assume take the poison and keep listening to it. Because look what he says. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. You ever been around somebody, all they do is complain? All they are is bitter? They don't see God's hand in anything. They just see what they want and they don't get it. Man, they're just the most miserable people in the world to be around. God says, in our, out of our mouths come what? Cursing. Now, it's interesting, I spoke at that men's retreat a few weeks ago, and you know what's interesting about men, is, and here's kind of the rationale that we have as men. And, you know, what? I'm in the construction industry, so I hear all kind of stuff when you go out on a job site and you hear people when they call you. I mean, you hear stuff, it's like, what in the world? And it's like, and, and you got people say, well, you know what, though, but I'm in the construction industry, that's just how you got to talk. Okay? Then I meet guys who are in the military. I'm in the military, that's just how you got to talk. Then I meet professional athletes. You know, that's just kind of the way it is around the locker room, that's just how you got to talk. And I'm starting to think, you know what? Maybe it's just us. Construction, military. And then I hear women. You go, what in the world? There's nothing more disgusting and gross than hearing the F-bomb come out of a woman's mouth. And I go, what? I mean, it's just like, and then I begin to realize exactly what God says. You know what? Out of the mouth comes cursing. I, had a, I was in a Bible study once, I said, you know what, that's what's in the heart of man. And I had a guy say, you know what, you know what, I don't believe that. I believe that man is inherently good. I said, really? 
And I don't believe that everybody talks that way. And I don't believe that's in the heart of every person. I said, is that right? He said, that's exactly right. I said, I'll tell you what. Let's go out on the street. And the first person that walks by, you punch him in the side of his head. <laughs> and you see what comes out of the man's mouth. You know, if you think it's going to be, bless you, my brother, <laughs> then, then you win. But I'll tell you what, I'll lay some big odds on what's going to come out. Because that's what comes out of the heart of man. Don't try that at home. There's a disclaimer. Okay, here's it. That's our conversation. Now notice our conduct, verses 15 through 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. Swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery in the path of peace they don't know. And you know why all of this is the way that it is? Look at verse 18. The cause is centered in our attitude towards God. Verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Doesn't that just sum it all up? There is no fear of God in our culture today. There is no fear of God in the hearts of men. Man is living like God doesn't even exist. And we've begun to believe the lie because we're the ones who started it. God didn't create us. God didn't create the universe. It just all banged together. Now how stupid are we? Think about that. The world is bought into a bunch of dirt and dust came together and created the universe and it just banged together. And they're promoting that because they have big PhDs behind their names. And you know what my favorite expression is? Pout higher and deeper. That's it, PhD, pout higher and deeper. When it comes to refuting the truth of the Word of God, I don't care how many PhDs you got stacked up, it's piled higher and deeper. And you know what? In professing to be wise, we've become fools. How can you believe that? Go out in your backyard and try to create a planet by throwing dirt and stones together. Throw it as hard as you want. Spend as much time there as you have to. Pick up some dirt and just keep throwing it at each other. I'm thinking nothing's coming out of it except frustration. You see, God, man lives as if God doesn't exist. We've come to believe God doesn't exist because we've promoted the lie. We are now not accountable to God because we've promoted the lie God doesn't exist. Therefore, we don't have to answer to him because he doesn't exist because we say so. Think of how stupid that reasoning is. God does exist. And we will all have to give an account to him one day. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Solomon, the wisest man other than Jesus who walked the face of the earth, said, you know what, I'll tell you what, the summation of all my life is fear God and obey his commandments because at the end we will all have to give an account to him, each one of us individually. That's the cause of all of it. Now God in turn says clearly all mankind, you and me included, and I'm just going to make it personal so not to be offensive to you, and that's this. Chuck, you're a mess. <laughs> See, the problem is you people encourage that. <laughs> if you wouldn't have laughed, he would stop saying stuff. Every now and then, though, it kind of comes out kind of funny. But uh, he's saying, Chuck, you're a mess. 
from the top of your head to the tip of your toes, you're a mess. You have a mind that hears the truth, and yet you do not act upon it. You have eyes that look to those things that you shouldn't be seeing. You have a mouth that says things that it shouldn't say. Out of your mouth comes cursing and complaining and bitterness. Out of your mouth comes lies and gossip and slander. Out of your mouth is expressed anger of your heart. It says your, your mind is a mess. Your eyes are a mess. Your mouth and your conversation is a mess. You have hands that even shed innocent blood or your feet run to evil instead of running to good. Running to God, we run away from Him. He's saying, you know, from the top of your head to the tip of your toes, you are a mess. Now we go back to the courtroom. How do you plead? I plead guilty. I am guilty as charged. And God says, good, because I can help you who seek help. I can help you who acknowledge your guilt before me. And in case we don't believe that, he goes on in 19 and 20 and says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God. You know what he's saying is, hey, you know what? The law has done its job and points to the fact that each one of us are guilty before God. And I like what it says. And each one of us have come to the point where our mouth should be shut before God. Have you ever had an employee or a child or somebody who just keeps mouthing off? They just won't shut up. They keep trying to defend themselves when they're guilty and everybody knows they're guilty, but they're kind of coming up with some reason, but, 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 but what about this and what about that, but I didn't do it and she, what about her, what about him? And you know what? God says, this, just close your mouth. Close your mouth. How can you stand before me when the accusations are so clear, when the charges are so concise, when you are guilty as guilty can be, and how can you stand before me, open your mouth and say anything towards your defense? There is nothing to say. It is time to throw yourself on the mercy of the court. And that's step number two. And that's responding with faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Responding in faith to the finished work of Jesus Christ. How do you get to heaven? Recognize that you're guilty before God. Then what do you need to do? You need to respond in faith to the finished work of Christ. Look at verse 21. But now. I love that. I told you once, and I'm still going to do this. I went through the Bible this past week and I started circling every, the big butts of the Bible. I love that. What a great series that would be. The huge butts of the Bible. And, and, and here it is. This is one of the biggest buts you'll ever see in the Bible. But now. And it's a contrast saying that you're guilty, but now. I got good news for you. This is the turning point of our study in the book of Romans. But now, you're guilty. You've come before the judge. You throw yourself on his mercy and he says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested or made seen or become visible, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. God is saying that all of his word, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, everything that God has given us in written form is pointing to one great act in human history. And that's God will send his son into the world to die on the cross for our sins. 
We are guilty. And he's sending the innocent in the place of the guilty. And he put them on the cross. And he shed his blood for our sins. But now those who are guilty, we have hope in Jesus Christ. But now, things are different. But now, after Jesus' death on the cross, we can enter into relationship with God. But now we're no longer guilty for those who believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. He says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Every person in the universe has been extended this invitation that God so loved the world, the entire world of humanity, that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe on him would have everlasting life and would not perish. But now, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for those who believe. And there's the key. It's not for every person. We are not all going to heaven. Only those who believe in Jesus Christ are declared innocent before God. The judge who must punish sin, who must hold up the law, took Jesus in our place and he put him on the cross and he died for our sins. So that you and I, if we believe that, are declared innocent. We will never be declared righteous because there's nothing good in any one of us. But we can be declared innocent by putting our faith and trust in God. Believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You are standing in the courtroom and you say, Your, Your Honor, Father, I'm guilty. And I throw myself at Your mercy. And He says, I've sent Jesus Christ to die in Your place. If you believe that, you will be forgiven and I will declare you innocent and I will deliver you from the consequences of your sin. You will no longer be condemned. You can be set free. If you believe. The world we live in says, all roads lead to heaven. The Bible says there's only one way to heaven. Jesus said it, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto heaven but through me. It says, being justified, continue to read, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. We're going to talk about it, past tense. All of us are guilty because Adam sinned. All in the world have sinned because of Adam's sin. Have sinned, past tense and fall short, and, and the word is, continue to fall short. On your best day and my best day, we will never be perfect, so we continue to fall short of God's standard of perfection. We can't do this, but notice what he says, being justified as a gift by grace. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it's by grace we're saved through what? Faith, and not of ourselves. It is what? A gift from God. For those who would believe. God is offering you and I a gift. He's saying, Chuck, you're guilty and you're condemned. And the final execution of that sentence is an eternity separated from me in a place called hell, the lake of fire. That's where you're going. You are guilty. And if you cry out for mercy, I will hear you. And if you believe what I tell you, that Jesus Christ died in your place, if you believe in Him and Him alone, the finished work of Christ on the cross, think about it. Why did Jesus say it is finished on the cross? Because it is. It is finished. God's plan to redeem and to save and deliver man from the consequences of sin was completed the moment that Jesus Christ shed His blood in our place on the cross for those who believe. 
And three days later, he rose again from the dead, demonstrating that he has the power over sin and over death. That if he says that he will give us life, he has the ability to do so. And he has ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father because what he did is done. Complete. Finished. Nothing left undone. It's complete. The Bible says he endured the pain and despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. And that was our redemption to those who believe and trust in him. The Bible says we must respond with faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And the final step is this. We must also refuse to place any confidence in our own efforts. Any confidence in our own efforts. In verse 28, For we maintain that man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. Let me tell you something, and and listen very clearly. Jesus Christ's death on the cross is sufficient to satisfy the payment of sin that must be paid to all of those who believe. It is faith in Jesus and in Jesus only, period. It is not faith in Jesus and then baptism. It is not faith in Jesus, then the sacraments. It is not faith in Jesus and church attendance. It's not faith in Jesus and reading through the Bible in a year. It's not faith in, faith in Jesus and giving so much money a year, giving 10% or whatever it is. It's not faith in Jesus and anything else. It's faith in Jesus, period. Period. There is nothing that you and I could ever do to add to what Jesus has done in our place on the cross. That's why he said, it is finished. That's why he told the thief on the cross that was next to him, today you shall be with me in paradise. Why? Because he put his faith in Jesus Christ. Why did he do that? Because he acknowledged his guilt. He said to the other thief, don't you even know when you're guilty? I'm guilty. I'm guilty as charged. That's why I'm dying here. I'm guilty. And he looked at him and he said, this man has done nothing. He is innocent. And he put his faith and his trust in a dying Savior. Can you imagine the faith that it took to believe as he saw Jesus die next to him that Jesus Christ was truly the Messiah, the Savior of the world? And when Jesus looked at him and said, today you will be with me in paradise, guess what he did at that point? He ruled out us adding anything to what he did on the cross in our place. You want to know how to get to heaven? The Bible is very clear. The road is very clear, but is also very narrow. And Jesus said, you've got to enter by the narrow gate, for broad is the road that leads to destruction. The religions of the world all tell us that, you know what, if you do this or if you do that, then you know what, all roads lead to heaven, and the only thing that matters is you're sincere. And the word of God is very con- clear and very concise. There is no way to get unto the Father but through me, Jesus said. There is no way to get to heaven other than recognizing that you're guilty before God. God, save me from the consequences of my sin. I'm guilty as you charge. I'm on my way to hell. I throw myself on your mercy. I believe that Jesus Christ died for me. I believe in the finished work of Christ on that cross. I don't understand it, but I know clearly that's what you say, that he took my place. 
And I believe that. And I want Him to come into my life and to make Him the Lord of my life and my Savior. The Bible says, if any man is in Christ, old things pass away and all things become new. And Lord, I'm going to refuse to take any credit for any of that. I'm going to refuse to add anything to it. I'm going to refuse to get hung up as the world does on all the things I've got to do to somehow or another be more pleasing in your sight because there's nothing more pleasing than what Jesus did on our behalf. God was so well pleased with Jesus that he gave him a name that was above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess of those on the earth and under the earth and in heaven that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. God gives us an option. And that option is to freely choose this gift that he's offering. But with the freedom of choice comes the option of rejecting and refusing to believe any of it. Our responsibility is those who have come to know him Our responsibility as those who have been entrusted with the message of salvation is to share that message with those he brings into our life. We're not responsible for their choices. We're responsible to share the directions and then they can choose to see whether or not they want to follow them or not. Just as when I'm on a run, I can give directions to people and they can look at me and try to decide whether I'm trustworthy and to follow those directions or to, you know what, just go back to the map book and find it on their own. But we have the truth. And we're entrusted with the truth. And Apostle Paul in in this letter of Romans said, you know what? I am indebted to all men because I know the way to heaven and I have a responsibility to share that with the world that's lost around me. They may never, ever come and ask for directions, but our life should be such an indicator of where we're going that we can have the confidence that the Word of God says, but I'm confident of this very thing, that the day that I'm absent from my body... I'll be present with the Lord because I've recognized my guilt. I've responded in faith to the finished work of Christ and I refuse to rely on myself but on Jesus and Him alone. Father, we just love you. We just thank you that this great love of ours, that this great love for us was demonstrated and yet while we were enemies of yours, you sent Christ to die for us. You say that you so love this world. You're motivated by love for us. Even when we're in rebellion and running from you, you sent Jesus to seek and to save us. God, I just pray for those who are here that continue to run from you, that they will stop and recognize what you have to say, that all of us are guilty, that none of us are righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Continue to fall short day after day. God, I just pray that we would understand that and recognize our guilt. You say that a broken and contrite heart, God, you will never despise, that he who seeks you out shall not be disappointed. I just thank you for Jesus. And I thank you for the offer that he made, the sacrifice on the cross in my behalf. Lord, I don't understand such great love, but I just thank you and praise you for it. I acknowledge that Jesus died on the cross and took my place. And I refuse to add anything to it so that the message doesn't get confused in the world that we live in, a world that is so religious and tries to somehow or another come up with a program that's pleasing to you And you tell us that the only thing that's pleasing is a relationship with you through Jesus Christ, your Son. God, help us to see there's nothing that we can add to the masterpiece that you created on the cross. That if we add anything to it, we defame it, we deface it, we defile it. Lord, help us to be men and women who preach Christ and Him crucified to a world that is lost. And we just praise you and we look forward to what you'll do through your message. In Christ's name, amen.